Hi everyone and welcome back to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. What a cracking episode we have for you this week. Today I was joined by the inspirational Denise Goff. Denise has a once in a generation acting talent. She blew the world away with her extraordinary performance in Duncan Macmillan's masterpiece, People, Places and Things, which started at the National Theatre before transferring to the West End and New York. Denise won an Olivier Award for that performance, and as if that wasn't enough, she then went on to win another one for her fantastic performance in Angels in America. Other career highlights include Our New Girl at the Bush Theatre, Adler and Gibb at the Royal Court, The Duchess of Malfi at the Globe Theatre, Paula for BBC Two, Stella for Sky, and a number of movies on the big screen. What makes Denise even more inspiring is her story. The way she got into acting, the way she forged her career, and the way she takes the challenges life throws her head on with openness, honesty and courage make this one of my absolute favourite Play Crush episodes. Denise's play crush was Electra by Sophocles. Set in the city of Argos a few years after the Trojan War, the play tells of the bitter struggle for justice by Electra and her brother Orestes for the murder of their father Agamemnon by Clytemnestra and their stepfather Aegisthus. Previous listeners will recognise Electra as the sequel to Sheila Atim's play crush Agamemnon. When King Agamemnon returns home from the Trojan War, his wife Clytemnestra, who has taken Agamemnon's cousin Aegisthus as a lover, kills him. Clytemnestra believes the murder was justified since Agamemnon had sacrificed their daughter, Iphigenia, before the war, as commanded by the gods. Electra, daughter of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, rescued her younger brother Orestes from her mother by sending him away. The play begins years later when Orestes has returned as a grown man with a plot for revenge as well as a claim to the throne. The play was written around 420 BC, so it's nearly two and a half thousand years old. But in typical Denise style, she makes this play sound incredibly relevant, contemporary and potent. So without further ado, here is Denise Goff and Electra. I'm just going to say for all the listeners, I am so impressed with myself as I sit here with my microphone and my little thing that I'm interface. It's an interface. I mean, what does that mean? You, you, you I don't know, our, Joe. I don't you know. You don't know what an interface is. You're just saying you've got no, one. I, I don't know what it's called. I don't know what an interface is. Well, you put the microphone into it and it's called a scarlet. So actually the guy, Gus, my teacher who I put off talking to for so long because I didn't think I'd be able to do it. He just calls it a scarlet. So actually it's just a scarlet, Joe. I just I have a scarlet here and I have a microphone with a pop shield, <laughs> just like Feed the World. Oh, wow. Feed the Yeah. And I'm drinking a coffee. And that is why I sound like I'm insane. Anyway, no, I'm thrilled with myself, thrilled, thrilled skinny, as my mother would say, with myself that I managed <laughs> to sort all of this out. On a rainy afternoon. I'm so impressed. You should be. That's what I want. (laughs) I just wonder if we like hop back through the mists of time uh, to the beginning of the Denise Goff legend. Um, That will end in absurd levels of success and awards uh, that will will embarrass you. That I'm surrounded by right now. You won't embarrass me. I love them. all times. They're all here, right here. (laughs) (laughs) Never speak of embarrassment. I'm not embarrassed about all my prizes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, God. 
God. Um, Literally just me amazing. and my okay, award great. in my flat. <laughs> Yeah, who said that awards couldn't keep you warm and cozy in a fucking pandemic? These awards have been keeping me really cozy. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Okay, right. Tell me where you want to start. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. When I was an infant. Yes, exactly. My my story starts. Um, Just, I suppose, where did like, where did it come from for you? You know, for me, I was a lonely kid. Um... And, uh, you know, and found like a tribe, basically, in like local yeah. Amjam groups. And that was it for me. You know, I was in then. So it has always been about tribe for me. But like, yeah. for you, like, wh- how did that, like, how did that start or how did that happen? Well, I come from this massive family, don't I? There's like 11 kids in my family. So <laughs> there wasn't an opportunity I to be. I always love that fact. Yeah, yeah. So ridiculous. So how clever You'd of me. You'd love to be lonely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how clever of me that I managed to find a way to combat the lack of attention I got as a child by now <laughs> having a career where everybody has to shut up until I stop speaking. And then... <laughs> clap loudly or in most recent days stand up while clapping for me (laughs) (laughs) so basically yeah I mean I'm just I'm a basic cliched came from a big family nobody listened didn't know who I like didn't feel like who I was was um sort of valued in terms of like I was a creative always like I as a child what I I didn't really play with things it was I was always off I see it in my nephew now too like I was pretending to be other people so like I was French for a bit and I spoke like this to everybody I spoke to people when I was uh, very small I would go around like as a kid I remember what I was wearing this very cool little yellow play suit when I was about eight or nine and um that was my that was my jam I would go up to builders and ask them to show me where the shop was. And then they would show me in like that, you go down the road and then you turn right. And why don't you get yourself an ice cream? Get us some ice creams and get, and I'd be like, oh, being French is so perfect. Like I do the whole thing. Excuse me, I'm wondering if you can to show me uh, to the shop. Like just loved myself as other people, you know? And then... Oh, yeah. I had all sorts of stories. My mother, I told everyone my mother was the housekeeper when she came to pick me up at school. I spent time living as um, uh, Richard Dean Anderson, who was the actor who played MacGyver, because I didn't want to just be MacGyver, Joe. I was the actor who played MacGyver. So Richard was my name and I had like short hair in like that spiky style and I carried like buttons and matches around in my pocket in case I had to make a bomb to get myself out of any like stressful situations <laughs> I was basically like yeah so I was a boy for two years uh, Richard and wow. I think then I heard that Richard Dean Anderson had died and it was devastating for me but it was a hoax it was a hoax Joe so it was fine oh, um, I was a bit worried there that we were taking a dark turn early on no 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 don't worry but there's a very dark turn later um no but I remember as a kid like realizing oh I should be like playing with dolls that's what girls do I should be playing and there's a photograph of me holding a doll looking incredibly bemused by this kind of plastic thing that I had in my hands that didn't do anything you know 
Um, Couldn't even so, turn into a bomb. Like yeah, exactly. But I did have a tiny Tim doll who had a little willy, and I thought that was really funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God, so much coffee. So much information coming out because of the coffee. Um, this is perfect. Yeah, so, so I... Uh, yeah, so I was always into, like, my imagination was incredible as a kid. I think most kids' imagination is incredible. And um, But in a, an Irish Catholic family in the west of Ireland, like, that translates into you can be a nurse or a teacher. Like, I didn't feel mm. like there was ever a, an opportunity to be an actress, you know. And then I did a, a drama class once a week, with this woman, Lord O'Donoghue, and she just thought I was brilliant. And I remember thinking, wow, she really thinks I'm brilliant. She really thinks I'm brilliant <laughs> at a thing that I just do naturally. It wasn't like a performing thing. And I see that in my nephew too. Like when you put him on a stage, he's a bit like, what do you want me to do? Like, mm. because I'm doing this all the time. My life, <laughs> my life was the stage, darling. Um, <laughs> and so, so I didn't necessarily connect to the idea of performing in front of people, but I lived des- de- definitely inside my imagination. And, um, and then this woman just thought I was fantastic. Uh, so I did a little class with her and then I, I auditioned to be in the Ennis Musical Society. So I was in Fiddler on the Roof as ensemble, which no, thank you. Furious. I was like, unless I can be one of those kids that talks all the time, I'm not interested. But I remember what I loved about the theater, um, was the community. Like I loved being part of this community of kind of quite like, I think it's what you say. It's that tribe thing. It's finding a bunch of people who love something that a lot of people are really scared of or something. And then I remember doing a play at school, Annie, which I didn't even want to audition for because I had heard they'd already cast Annie. And I was like, frankly, (laughs) unless I can be the lead. No. And then they asked me to play Miss Hannigan. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) how brilliant is that? I think I was 12. Maybe that eleven. Is ex- that is excellent no, I was eleven. Casting, by the way, I, I know, that brilliant. Killer right? casting. Yeah, I'm headed there. Don't you worry. When the theatre comes back, that's my role. <laughs> um, yeah. So I played Miss Hannigan, and I remember thinking, oh, on stage one night, everybody forgot their lines, like all the kids, and so I just started talking. I started making stuff up. I started, but in character. So I was making up things as Miss Hannigan and like slapping the kids and all. And the audience, they were going wild, Joe, wild. And I remember thinking, oh, I like this. I like feeling this kind of, I felt so completely safe on stage. Like for me, whenever I work with anybody who's like neurotic or scared about going on stage, I'm just like, no, don't leak that on me. (laughs) Because to me, the stage is like where everything goes right, even when it goes wrong. Everything makes sense to me on stage like mm-hmm. um so so I think my love of feeling like I think it's maybe that I'm <laughs> this is going to sound terrible I'm in control on stage mm-hmm. so if something goes mm-hmm. wrong it's up to me how to deal with it um, and I learned that on stage that's really easy isn't it and then it's taken me all of my 40 years to discover that you know I have to apply that to life too. It's up to me. <laughs> up to me how I respond to situations being shit or not shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so then um, 
I wanted to be an actress. So I had a, a, a plan that I was going to go to Trinity College in Dublin and study acting. And really, I'm so glad that I didn't do that now because it's an academic course and and uh, like degrees. I always think, oh, God, doing a degree in acting must be really hard because you have to read about acting for three years and then do a play. And that just sounds like hell to me. Um, uh, but my sister went there and she had a great time there. So it works for some and not for others, I guess. But but yeah, so then but then at like 13, I started boozing. <laughs> what child I look at a 13 year old now and I think what on earth was I I was a little kid you know but I was in I had a terrible time in school like the nuns I had one beautiful nun that I loved so much she died recently and I would still go to see her and like send her anything that I achieved in my career I would send to her in the nursing home and um she was so she always just thought she would say things to me like you have spirit she really encouraged this thing that she saw as spirit. But then I went into a couple of years of having nuns that just hated me. They hated the spirited child. And um, and it was actually really, uh, like they wouldn't get away with it now. There's absolutely no way. And, um, and it had a big effect. You know, how you speak to a child, be careful how you speak to children because it becomes their inner voice, you know. So I started thinking really shitty things about myself, I think. And so alcohol and drugs were really um great for me <laughs> because they just stopped me from having to listen to that negative voice you know but of course then what came with that was the utter destruction of my teenage years so um yeah so I ran away from home when I was 15 and I got to London when I just turned 16 and wow. and yeah and then I was kind of I mean, I guess I was homeless for a while. I tried to live with my brother for a bit. That didn't work because, you know, it just felt like I was I was in such a dark place about blaming myself for the whole thing. I didn't ever stop to think, you know, I'm a kid. <laughs> I'm a fucking kid. Like now I look back and I think she's a child. Um, but and did that was that. Did the nuns give voice to something you think that like was already there? Or did was it literally like internalizing that kind of like hatred from them well I don't know I think that you know when you grow up when I look at families who have any amount of children I think they're amazing if they can meet those children's emotional needs but if you have 11 children it's very <laughs> difficult to meet all of their emotional needs I, I really don't think that it's possible and by the time I came along I was number seven so you know everybody did the best they could but I no longer feel guilty for needing attention. You know, it was kind of a big thing in my house. Like, God, you need stop looking for attention. And now I think, of course I was looking for attention. <laughs> Every kid is looking for attention. Um, so, you know, I have so much love for my family. They, they did so many, they, you know, everybody, like I said, they did the best they could, but uh, a kid that doesn't feel heard is going to go and try and feel heard in other ways. And, mm. and, and I did that in a really, really destructive way. But I'm also really grateful. Like, it kind of alcohol and drugs kept me alive for a long time. Um, I know that sounds oh, so kind of strange. What, what do you mean by that? So well, they act as a solution, you know. And they gave me a sort of... When I got to London, um, because they gave me bravado or something, there were situations that I was in 
that other people don't come out of, you know, but because I was this mad little Irish girl and I was very little, you know, and I had no hair, I'd shaved, shaved my head. So I was like a, a wild little thing. And then I would meet people along the way. There have been all of these amazing, incredible people who I haven't seen who since, you know, who would kind of look out for me somehow. And, um, but they're not necessarily people that, you know, your family would want you to be hanging out with. But to me, they were, um, yeah, I was kept safe. I don't know how. I mean, look, it was very dark and we can, I can laugh about moments of it, but I've stopped feeling kind of ashamed of my story because of the guilt that I felt of like hurting my family and everything. I, I've had to let go of all of that because it's my story. And it's kind of amazing that I went from being a child who, you know, I used to pick up fag butts in the street and beg for money. That was my, that's the truth of, you know, because sometimes I look back and go, did that really happen? But mm. like it did. And I remember vividly walking up and down Shaftesbury Avenue when I was 16 years old and looking at these theatres like in tears, picking up the fag butts and thinking, how am I going to get in there? Like, how does, how do I go from this <laughs> to that and then when I I did a play six characters in search of an author and I walked up this I had like a real deja vu moment I was on Shaftesbury Avenue and I looked up and there was a poster of me outside the theater and I remember like Noma de Mizwani was outside the theater and she saw me like drop to my knees I had this real moment of like fucking hell how how has this happened? And now I look back and I think it's happened because I've worked so, so hard <laughs> and overcame a lot of stuff to, um, to get there, you know? Um, so, so yeah. I, so the reason I say that about alcohol and drugs is because it took the edge off everything. You know, I think if I had been awake to it all, it would have been too much for this little girl that I was, you know, but instead I had this sort of, I don't know. I'm, I'm really great. I don't, I, and I can also be grateful because I no longer drink or take drugs. So, so I knew when the relationship was over as well, it was like, okay, it's not working anymore. You're actually really harming me. And now it's like an abuse situation. So, um, but I'll be always forever thankful. I don't know if I would have survived, you know, essentially the streets of London without booze and, and drugs. I can really, I really respond and relate whenever I see somebody like there's some guys that live under the bridge near here and, um, and they're always hammered. And I, I have such a laugh with them because their sense of humor, they have this incredible sense of humor, despite the situation that they're in. And then, and one day I walked by and, and he looked half dead. So I, I kind of, I shook him and I was like, you all right. And he looked up and he was like really sad. And I said, Oh man, what's happening? And he said, like, just immediately went, give us a fiver. <laughs> and we just, the two of us started laughing so much. And I was like, it's why I would never not give somebody money in the street, because I think they're only going to go and buy heroin. Like, there's some times where I think, darling, if you need to take heroin to get you through tonight, then here's a fiver to fucking help you. Like, who am I to judge? You know, I think... um, because I've come from knowing what it's like. I didn't, I didn't sleep rough. I think there was only three nights that I had to sleep, sleep rough, but I, 
I didn't have a home for, you know, I ended up thankfully finding a squat uh, or a place that people let me move in. And then I squatted it basically. Um, and even for that, like so grateful for that. Um, but yeah, there was two or three nights where, uh, yeah. So bloody hell, we've gone off, haven't we? The coffee is, I'm crashing now, Joe. I'm crashing. It's all good. <laughs> We're giving ourselves permission to crash. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's amazing um, to hear you so like peace with that story, you know, like, cause that like to have like met yourself in some way, I suppose, and shaken hands with yourself in that kind of context. Well, because for so long it was just so guilt, you know, it was so, it was so painful to look back on my life and think I did so many people so wrong. And then, you know, I've had a lot of help. I'm a huge advocate of whatever support groups people need and spiritual work and therapists and everything, because the process of self-actualization is so important because it's very easy for me as an adult to think I was a bad kid, but I now realize there are no bad kids. Like there are kids that are responding to environments that they they don't feel safe in and they use whatever they need to, to survive those things. And actually now I look back on that little girl and I think what a little genius you were, Jesus, mm. to stay alive like that. And, um, and yes, I caused pain, but, but nobody got, nobody felt more of the pain than that child did. And so I owe it to her to now not, look back and blame her especially when she carried me for so long you know she carried herself sorry I shouldn't be using split personalities <laughs> like you know I was a massive woman and she was carrying me um no I have I have a lot of uh, gratitude now for my story because it also you know when you come from seeing how a lot of people have to live like I'm just in a state of gratitude most of my life now because the alternative reality to this is is pretty grim and mm. and so it would be you know I didn't get saved from the sinking ship to have the shit kicked out of me on the shore you know it's like mm. yeah. it's time to allow myself to to look back on all of that and see you know like why did a child why if I met a child that was drinking heavily at 13 I would want to know why I wouldn't think that's a bad kid I would think goof why do they need that and then I'd set about trying to help them out you know and do you think that's like fed into your work because I feel like I mean get ready for some embarrassment um <laughs> I feel like you know whenever watching you um obviously just like simply extraordinary on stage and simply extraordinary it's true simply simply (laughs) extraordinary and there's an electricity of it which to me feels like it comes from that really young child you're talking about playing and looking for attention and those kind of things Mm. but there's also like a compassion and a humanity and I suppose there's like an easy typecast version of Denise of like difficult characters or complex characters like whatever kind Mm. of nonsense that is um Mm. but there is a truth that you bring uh, a compassion and a humanity to characters who sometimes on the face of it, it can be hard to see where mm. that humanity lies. And do you think like have those experiences all poured into that? Do you think? And, and that you're, you're having seen all that other side of life. Yeah. Well, I feel now, cause now I can look back, can't I, and see the pattern of the women that come to me asking to be played because I really do feel that now. Like the women that I, Denise, would choose to play are 
you know, I had my plans just like everybody else. I would, I wanted to do Stella in Streetcar and Nora in A Doll's House and all of that. And those were my plans. And instead I get, you know, Abby from Desire Under the Elms. She comes out from under some bushes going, get here, get over here. I need you. (laughs) (laughs) And I would never, I didn't even know who she was, you know, and, um, And so I feel like the women that I seem to end up playing are women that sometimes can get played in a very, in a way that they are the victim of their story Uh, or if that makes sense. Or they, um, so like with Harper, for example, in Angels in America, I had a really clear, like, it was like she arrived in a dream or something. I was like, you need to tell them how fucking angry I am. I am <laughs> I am so angry. I am so angry that I'm in this situation. Like, so I was able to connect with the idea of what it is to be like, because she's essentially an abused, she's in, it's domestic abuse, emotional domestic abuse situation, you know? But so often because of the writing, she can become this kind of kooky, you know, I'm not even seeing anything. And it's like, Mm. I don't know. I guess, uh, I guess I, I know how to interrogate these women's, the perceptions about these women, because I have been written off as one of those people myself, you know, and Mm. I have also been scapegoated in my life. So, um, it's very easy to blame the bad kid, like in school, for example, you know, I was the bad kid. So that meant this woman who was my teacher, she could act out as much as she wanted because she had a perfect scapegoat because I was, uh, yeah. So I, I guess I, I don't judge them entirely on like, I'll find a way to, to show the truth of them, I guess, which is more interesting. And it doesn't matter whether you like them or not they're telling the truth. That's, you know, so like in desire under the elms, I thought to myself, Jesus, this is a woman who's had to be like sleeping with these old men all her life to kind of survive. So it's all survival. And then she meets this really hot young guy. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't even matter how he speaks to her. how He treats her. She's just like, Whoa, I've like, she's sort of a love addict. Um, yeah, so so I tend to also seem to be drawn to or or women who are written off as addicts seem to be drawn to me as well, you know. Like addiction comes from somewhere. Yeah, and I think that's what I love about what you're talking about though as well, about like um, it's flipping the lens, isn't it? Right, with the easy thing of the, all those characters you're talking about is exactly to write them off. But to, to say, well, maybe there's a systemic problem absolutely absolutely you know that's really an amazing insightful interpretation it's like with addiction there's a brilliant um physician called gabor mate who i listen to a lot and he's he works with addicts and he says that he never ever asks why the addiction he asks why the pain and if we were to start applying that to people who seem to be in these positions he says the bigger the addiction the bigger the pain and rather than writing people off because the behavior that they exhibit is not to your taste you ask where is that behavior coming from and what can we do to like um heal something I guess I'm I'm being pseudo psychiatry here and I'm sorry I don't mean to be um 
But I, I have studied no, this stuff a lot. You know, I, I believe that the idea of it's so easy, isn't it, to play. So, so for example, with the big play, people, place and things, she could so <laughs> easily, you just play the addict. You just play that part of her. But instead, what Duncan did so brilliantly was he kind of brought you right back to the family home at the end of that. And you see that she's actually, addiction is all about finding a solution to trauma. You know, and addiction is in, I'm not talking about just drugs and alcohol. There's everything, codependency, love, sex, shopping, people, fantasy, sugar, all of it. Podcasts. Podcasts, anything. (laughs) Like Gabor Mate's addiction was to classical music. And so he was never classed as an addict because that's a much more palatable thing to be addicted to. But he was spending eight grand a week on classical music and as a physician he was uh, working on a labor ward and he left a woman who was in labor in order to go and get this certain cd but because because it's not shooting up it's kind of not but we are all in addiction all of us because we are in a place i believe of lacking compassion for those like we we can't seem to see each other's stories you know or sometimes we're not interested in seeing them, but like you only have to look at how everything is working in here and in America um, with the kind of the lack of compassion for people that we, that are deemed not as important as another, as other people. Like how can we do Human beings need to be treated with compassion and and boundaries. I think that's that's amazing. (laughs) You just start with that question, right? Like why the pain? I think that's, because all that matters is the truth right so for me like I've been in situations in work situations where the person opposite me doesn't like me or there's or they find me too difficult or whatever because I'm not telling the truth that they want me to tell I'm telling the truth of my character that is my responsibility that is what I sign up for and as somebody who in her real life I like being liked Joe I love people loving me <laughs> like, I really do I want to be everybody's friend I just want it all to be nice all the time because I've had a lot of conflict in my life um and but but when I get to work, I'm sorry, but unless un, unless what's being offered to me from the the person opposite me is is in keeping with the truth of the character, then I'm afraid I'm gonna I'm gonna ride the wave of you not liking me. And so my work isn't always comfortable. Like fucking hell. <laughs> Although I have to say, people, places, and things was one of the most joyful experiences of my life. And maybe it's because the entire play was to- told through the eyes of my character. So, <laughs> so God bless them, all the actors, even if they had a great idea, it was like, well, would my character think that that was a great idea? <laughs> so maybe I'm kind of fucked now and I can only work on plays like that. But but I definitely, I have come up against, whether it be directors or um, actors or producers or whatever, um, who, because they don't agree with what I'm doing, and want me to change it because it's not palatable to them because that's what it's usually about. It's usually about, I'm not comfortable. And I think, well, figure that shit out. That's your stuff. And do you find that like, is that, because also I feel like that's in the women you play as well, in a way that sort of that, I think that word palatable to keep coming back to is really interesting about like, um, I feel like again, the parts you play are quite 
challenging to the sort of societal pressure of like what a palatable woman is or what like Absolutely. an acceptable form of woman is. Um, Absolutely. And I and I and I didn't realize that that was what but if you're if if you're what I consider like acting to be is like you're a conduit. So so anything that is offered to me it's about clearing the space so that I can be used to tell these particularly um and I identify as a woman so they're particularly female stories like it's why until there is equal representation between actors and actresses I will be an actress because we need to stay really visible you know because otherwise we can seem like it's much further ahead than it is and so as um so often I we have been the kind of appendage so often that when we do get into positions where we get to play parts like this and it's important to show all of women like all mm. of us what we're capable of you know and that's mm. not always fucking palatable and that's it's not my problem if you don't find me palatable <laughs> like <laughs> i have had enough of like i am a i am a, a nice person like i make it as easy as i possibly can but i realized that what i also did or can do is that i will because of my kind of very human desire to kind of have a nice room and a nice rehearsal room and 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 it be liked i'll be i'll forget how powerful i am actually as an actress because i don't want people to find feel uncomfortable around me and there is mm. nothing nobody wins in that like nobody so there have been times when i have yeah it's been tricky to navigate like I've gone into a room under power and then wondered why people f think it's okay to try and direct me and stuff, you know, like, <laughs> Oh, hang on. And that goes back to like seeking my part too. It's like, well, I can't be just angry at the person who has tried to direct me. It's like, well, how did I set that in motion? Mm. I have obviously allowed that person to think that that's okay. And that's on me. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to always feel like, and I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm talking about, knowing your worth and knowing what you're capable of. And I have worked really hard for a really long time. So I'm not going to like, I owe it to myself that when I walk into these rooms now that I bring that with me and I bring all those other women with me, you know, mm. because if I don't, then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to hear you talk about it. It's incredibly inspiring. Um, so, and I just want to pick up there, you, what you're saying there about how you've worked for so hard, you know, so you know that worth when you're in the room. So if, yeah. can we just jump back to the 16 year old girl on Shaftesbury Avenue? Like, what did she do next? Like how, cause it, it's, it's, it's so interesting about like getting into drama school. Like what's the bridge yeah. between being on that so, Shaftesbury Avenue and then getting to, you know, actually partake? So I, when I was, I think I must have been 18 because I did it because I could also sign on. So for the first two years I was in London, I, I couldn't do anything. Like I had no money. My family would lend me money every now and then, but that just made me feel even more ashamed of myself. I remember my 18th birthday sitting on the, the Camberwell green outside the job center, like waiting to be allowed in so that I could <laughs> sign on finally, because for two years <laughs> I'd been working like washing dishes in a, I, I've been a chambermaid for a while in a fancy hotel that <laughs> hired underage people. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I had like, I, yeah, I had done all sorts of things and I, um, and I was also supporting like a, a drug and alcohol habit. So, so I had to work. And um, so so when I was 18, I went to the job center and then 
I was told that there were courses you could do, you know? So I looked at courses and I saw at Lewisham college, there was a two year acting course that you could do while signing on. So, um, so I wouldn't have to work all the time as well. So I did that for a year, but I, I didn't, I didn't like it very much that I remember one of the tutors was, it all just seemed quite ego-y and, and a bit mean, you know, like, um, it wasn't a very nurturing space. I met some lovely people that I became friends with for a little while, but in terms of learning, I don't know, it gave me a bit of space to think, oh, I'm good at, I actually am good at this. Like it's the first time I read A Doll's House. So so yeah, I went to Lewisham College and then I left there and I, and then there was a club called Imperial Gardens, which had been shut down because there was a lot of violence there. And so I, on a Saturday, there was a guy who taught a class there, an improvisation class. And I can't remember even who told me about it, but I would go there every Saturday, no matter how crazy my night before had been or whatever it was like sustenance to me so every Saturday I would go to this three-hour class and we'd like do mask work and improv work and the guy said to me you need to go to drama school Hmm. um and I was like yeah I don't don't know I don't have any money (laughs) I don't have any money because I'm always high um (laughs) So I asked my parents to lend me the money and they sent me enough money to do four auditions because they were 35 pounds each. And I spent all the money except for one audition. <laughs> so I I went for an audition at ALRA, the Academy of Live and Recorded Arts. And then I'll never forget, like I did the audition and then I went home to see my family at one point and over the summer or something, I would still visit and everything, even though the relationships were very fraught, but I would still go home and... And I remember sitting at a table in a place called Fenor, which is where they used to go on holiday. And and everyone was saying, like, you're not going to get in to drama school. And if you do, how are you going to pay for it? Like, it's nine grand a year. We're not going to pay for it. But the overwhelming thing was you're not going to get in. And uh, because all they saw of me was like this disastrous kid. And um, and then I remember borrowing my dad's phone, one of those little Motorola flip phones. And I went down to the beach and I smoked a massive joint <laughs> and because I just couldn't handle being in my right mind. And um, or maybe being stoned at that time was my right mind. Um, and I called the drama school because I hadn't heard anything from them. And they said, oh, yes, we've been trying to get in touch with you. You got a place. And I said, well, I, I can't do anything with it like how how can I do it and they said no no you've got a full scholarship we're going to pay wow. full scholarship and then you'll be given a bursary to pay your rent oh my and God. I went back up to that house I mean can you imagine <laughs> how high I was <laughs> and I put that little phone on the on the table and I was like I got into drama school and to be able to say I got and I think for a long time they didn't believe I was going like my family thought I was such a liar mm. So that's how it happened. And then and then it's been ups and downs like everybody else. You know, I had periods, long periods out of work. I had fallouts with people. I had, you know, all sorts of things. And none of it, none of it do I regret. Not a, not a moment. It's all built up to being like, it was so, so satisfying people, places and things because I felt like it was still all about the work like that exploded around me that whole time and then you know what at my birthday recently just before lockdown I was 40 and I had like a gratitude party for some people and I brought them to the restaurant where I had last worked as a waitress 
and Duncan mm-hmm. was there and uh, and he said to me he had never told me this or if he did I had not given it as much weight as as it needed to have had he said the last time I was in this restaurant was 13 years ago when you were a waitress and you were my waitress oh my and god yeah and he said I had seen you on stage a couple of weeks previously and I thought how is she now my fucking waitress and he said my mom was so mean to you that I left you a massive tip and then I never saw you again. And then I wrote this play and in my mind somewhere was this waitress. Wow. And then you walked in and you took the part. And then in rehearsals, he was like, and then I realized it was you. So he said, even because people had said he had written that play for me, but we had never met. And then he said, but actually I had written it for you. It's just, I didn't know it was you. And then you came in and went, oh yeah, here, there it is. Yeah. Wow. Well done, Duncan. It's Isn't mythic. that amazing? It's mythic. Yeah. It's like I'm mythic. telling you, I am a witch. These things that happen in my life, that's how I know I'm on the right path. There's too many of those like oh my God. little moments that are like, oh, okay, right. I'm talking about myths. That's a good, we can link Oh across. my God, that was clever. You're so good at podcasts. Natural. Oh my God, I'm such a <laughs> podcaster. Um, <laughs> as to your amazing play crush, Electra, which having heard this amazing story of of you and also I suppose the way you you find into your characters into the plays suddenly sense, the choice right? of Electra I mean like I'm just like yeah okay great <laughs> what other play could you have chosen really in yeah, a way it's funny isn't it because I the thing is I don't know very many versions I don't know what version I'm talking about I know it's written by Sophocles right but basically I saw a version of Electra at drama school I was in the first year and I saw it being done by the third years. And there was this girl, I think her name was Francesca maybe. And I just remember she was on stage all the time and she was (laughs) fucking raging. And I was thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. Where's all the men? Oh, this is, this is a woman's rage story. Like this is a woman shouting out what the truth is and being told she's not telling the truth. So it's the story of a scapegoat. Basically she is a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just thought, Oh, there's my woman there. There Mm. I I connected with it so deeply in terms of what she represented, I guess. And so when I was choosing a play, like I also told you, I love Death of a Salesman and I can talk that mm. talk about that much more in a play kind of way. Yeah. But Electra as an actress, as a woman, had a huge effect on me because for the first time I was watching someone who was unapologetically fucked off. <laughs> like she was so angry. And at every point, everyone's trying to tell her, no, shush, stop, stop. In the face of this awful thing, like... They kill her father and then shack up together like her mother. And so, so I was sitting there thinking, yeah, she's really right to be really angry about this. <laughs> um, but it, it was sort of, it became, and over the years has become a way for me to like, think of like how women and don't even get me started. I mean, I'm speaking from a white woman's point of view. Don't even get me started on any like of like black women what they have to shout out against and are not heard and especially in our industry and everything basically anyone any if i have it difficult as a white woman like within that is yeah it's a bigger thing sorry mm. i shouldn't be kind of swerving over to there but i no, just know fine. that 
but the, for me, like, if I find it difficult to have my voice heard, I mean, it's getting better, of course. Um, I see the ways in which I'm still privileged because I'm a white woman getting my voice heard, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and so what I saw that day on stage was a pretty white woman shouting a lot and not being listened to. (laughs) And, uh, and I just related, you know, Yeah. I feel like I'm not being very articulate about plays. I'm so sorry, Joe. I wish I was more articulate about being incredibly articulate about about other things. But I think isn't that the best thing about like plays? But also I found with anyone we've talked to on the podcast, like the best thing is like how that person interacts with the play. Less, you know, a literary sort of description of the player and as play is kind of boring, but to hear like how people find their way in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And to know that also because, you know, at drama school too, I was just seeing a lot of men's stories, you know, we see it still all the time and it's very frustrating. And so when the Greeks came along, because (laughs) even Shakespeare, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm so sick of being either the girl who's a virgin or the woman who's going to take down all of mankind. Like... (laughs) I mean, I did enjoy. I played Queen Margaret in um, in Richard the oh, Third, and I, funny, I do, yeah. I do love, I do love her. But um, but I couldn't see myself in Shakespeare. I couldn't see myself in those women. And sort of like I know it's probably blasphemous to say, but even in Chekhov, I just I couldn't. Mm. I saw so much privilege in Chekhov that I was like, oh, I can't, I can't. But here in the Greeks, I was like, oh, <laughs> even though they're queens and princesses and all that, but they are intense women with agency you know Mm. and I worked in Greece last year I did a film there and I spent like six months there and started learning the language and everything and the way that those their um society is is the most equal of it's kind of bizarre like on the set we had like the first AD was a woman and she had so much power and she was allowed to have all of that power and then the director's little daughter Milou she had done a um a play in her nursery and the play they did was Lysistrata. I mean, (laughs) so I was like, okay, how do they make that happen? And, and basically they rewrote it for the kids and in it, the girls stop playing with the boys until the boys stop fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. And the way they said it was, it was all these girls in a line across one wall and the boys were in the other and they were kind of coming in towards each other. And it was, this kind of amazing thing that was teaching boys and girls that girls have power. We have power. Um, so yeah, so I, I didn't really grow up in that kind of system. So uh, yeah, I, the Greek, the Greeks get me excited. I have to say. And is it, yeah. And I mean, who are the other one? Like, are you a Medea fan? Are you, you know, is it, is it a few yeah. like you've connected with a few of them? And I suppose then why, why Electra then is the, is it because of that moment in drama school, that awakening moment that she somehow feels special? I to think you? so. But also it's the scapegoat thing. It's the mm. being gaslit, you know, being told something is not happening when you know that it is happening. Mm. It, it resonated to me in a way that because Medea, I read a version of Medea recently that was kind of troubling to me. It was, it, she just seemed like she was like falling apart because her husband left her and, mm those kind of things just jar with me a little bit. They have to be bigger somehow. And um, so with Electra, it felt like there was a massive truth in her and she was told she was lying. I I guess it's like Hamlet, right? Hamlet is told Mm -hmm. he's lying or he's kind of told he's mad. um, 
Yeah. Exactly. And that is a really, uh, that's a re- to, t- to kind of manage to convince someone that they're mad because it really affects how you speak to yourself. And, and what I respected so much about Electra was that even though she was told that she was mad, she held on, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and that, um, gave me hope because I was being told I was mad, bad and everything in between. And, uh, it, it can, yeah. I think maybe it it kind of tapped into feeling like you have been a truth teller and then being told you're a liar. It's mm-hmm. very painful to be there because if you start doubting your your mind, that's really painful. Oh, it's so painful. Yeah, hugely. I mean, and I lo- it's amazing to hear you talk about it like that because, you know, sometimes I find the Greeks, um, I find like I love what the Greeks are about. And then I watch plays and always feel a bit like, man, eh, they're a bit dull, a bit boring. I'm not really into it. A lot of people shouting. Yeah. But the way you talk about it, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the version I want to see. Like they, they, they're so like primal in the humanity. But that's what I, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's, again, the women that I seem to be drawn to are women that so easily get played as like haranguing, shouting, oh Mm. God, shut her up, you know, but if Mm. we can find a way to play those women and make them uh, where you have to hear them. It's about, it's how we learn, isn't it? I, I know, for example, my voice is not, I, I spent a long time having to work out, um, how to channel my need for the truth to be told all the time. I used to lose my shit. I mean, I have thrown handbags at directors. I have screamed (laughs) terrible C words at people. (laughs) And I have every time been like, shit, I don't want to respond like that because people get to write you off when Mm. you do that. Like I've had someone stand in front of me as I've lost it. And I saw him delight in the fact that I had lost it. Yeah. And I thought, oh no, I've done it again. <laughs> um, so, so I'm much better now at holding my power in a different way. Like articula- articulacy is so powerful mm. because it means that it's confounding to the other person. Mm-hmm. So instead it puts the thing back on them to deal with. So, because when I used to lose it, that person who had kind of pushed all those buttons was basically made right. You know, there, I told you she's mad. If you listen to people like, like Maya Angelou and stuff, all of these incredible leaders who were able to like do something that make you just, you can tell they're angry, but they don't lose their shit. (laughs) Like, so basically he's my hero. If I could, if I could emulate even one, millions of what that woman was able to do with her power as a woman and as a black woman oh I would be yeah I'd be kind of set but I'm really in toddler stages of learning how to articulate myself without shouting the c-word and do you feel like with Electra um do you feel that she's been robbed of that articulacy is that because there is a rage in the play isn't it or is it like an awakening to her finding that like uh finding her her own power through the play like where do you think she sits on that spectrum of you being a toddler Maya being I suppose almost like a village elder of that kind of power yeah well I think Electra is like teenager and then Mm. throughout the play by the end I would I how I would play it anyway is that she would deepen down into her power I guess Mm. that's what I would because if, if you stay in like 
I don't know, there has to be a journey of seeing her at the beginning fucking raging, but that speech that she makes to the gods, like that was the speech I did in drama school for the Laurence Olivier bursary thing. Mm-hmm. And I just remember doing it and thinking if she can just speak to them without being really emotional and screaming and shouting and it's not fair. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. So it's but, a- uh, but just like what's happening now, right? It's so interesting, isn't it? Because you have to allow the rage stage too. you mm. have to allow, like I had to go through years of not being able to contain my rage and shouting out about in the ways about the ways in which I feel now looking back, I was let down or, you know, there was a lot of shit there. So I needed like the me too movement. We needed to be out and angry. And then we have start, then you start being able to feel your way into okay, now I'm contained mm-hmm. in a different way. You know, I see it happening all over at the moment. This idea that there should, like, for example, with Black Lives Matter, that there is this idea that there is a way to protest that's palatable for us. <laughs> you know what I mean? How dare anybody say, like, there's a brilliant woman, um, Kimberly Latrice Jones, who speaks. I, I found her through... Um, Trevor Noah's Today Show, which is amazing. And she does this, she speaks this truth like for seven minutes. I'll send it to you. This it's just so powerful because she is so rageful, but also so articulate. And mm. it's so powerful because there's no getting away from the truth. If you if you put it across, you can use all of the passion, but to articulate it in the way she manages to do it is mind-blowing you know so i i see electra at the beginning as her rage being the rage of that gets written off really easily mm-hmm. because people are not comfortable with it they don't it's too messy yeah uh, it's ugly it's unattractive i mean i have had a director say to me about a character i play he said well i don't understand why anyone would want to fuck her if you play her like that <laughs> and i remember thinking because it says in the fucking script that they, they all have so, like I went into that job knowing that and spoke at length about how I wanted to play this particular character, but he found it unattractive mm. and I had to fight my own internal battle to like, that was actually one time when I didn't throw the C word around, which I kind of should have. Um, yeah. oh God, I'm just talking in circles now, but, but I feel like the, what I would like to do with, um, Electra and I, I, I think Antigone is another good one, mm. but I, as I get older, like I remember re- really wanting to play Ophelia, for example, because every time I saw Ophelia, she was just mad, you know, oh, she's mad. All the men die and she's mad. <laughs> and um, when Rob Ike was casting, was doing Hamlet with Andrew, I texted him and I was like, well, clearly I'm Ophelia. <laughs> and, he, and he said, and he said it had already been cast. Jess, beautiful, amazing Jess Brown Finlay was cast. And I went to see it and watching her performance and his direction of that um, uh, particular version of of Ophelia has taken my need to play it away because it Mm. has been done so Jess did it you Mm. know Mm. Jess played her she was scary like the the mad people in inverted commas don't know that they are mad in Mm. inverted commas so they're terrifying because so everybody else on stage should be fucking terrified when she comes in (laughs) but she shouldn't like you don't need to overdo that stuff, you know? And so I, I felt um, 
I felt that she she did it. I was so like I I I mean I I love Jess anyway, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, thanks for giving Ophelia that, because so often they're just directors don't know what to do with her. Mm, yeah, just she's crazy at this point. So this is when she's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> do so crazy acting. Crazy actor, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just not women are so much more complex than that, and so. For me, Electra, she can be annoying and teenage and everything. She can fucking, she has every right to be that way. Mm. And then what I would love to do with her is to like grow her up through the play yeah. so that by the end you see a woman that harnesses that teenage power, You a woman that like, well, a person, just a person. It's the same for men. You know, I look at John Boyega's rage at the moment. Have mm. you seen any of his? Yeah. It's so incredible to witness because you know what's going to happen with him. Like he is the voice of his generation and he's going to just continue honing and growing and like using that rage and the power of what he can do with that is, well, it, it's what we need, you know? So I would yeah. like to see, I would like to see, I would like to do something with a lecture where at the beginning, yeah, it's hard to hear and you don't want, and it's ugly and it, it can make you feel like, no, you shouldn't do it like that. You shouldn't protest like that. Nobody's going to listen. doesn't matter. You have to go through that stage mm-hmm. and then you grow yourself. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's like exactly your story, right? Like that's what you want to tell yeah. when you play. Like when hearing you tell that back, like it's telling that, young woman's story right and the rage of that and and it makes total sense about that play and that journey for you Um, yeah I think so I didn't really think about it to that extent but it makes sense yeah of course I must have seen that and thought it's me it's me and then now finally I'm at a like maybe I'm not ever going to play her because I'll have grown out of her yeah which is also a really interesting thing that happens interesting but I think in a way I feel like you've just figured out the ending of Electra, right? Like when you saw a drama score, would you have known that ending of like finding her power, finding her maturity, finding her articulacy? You know, it's like you've just figured out what the end of the play is in a weird way. It feels like. So it feels like now is... Yeah, because I don't even remember the end back then. I remember her hacking some of her hair off. I remember her digging in dirt. I remember all of that stuff. But I don't quite remember what happened, you know? So I guess I'm what happened. I am... But nobody has to die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay, guys. Everybody's safe. I have grown myself up, so I don't have to kill any of you. Nice. But, but that rage is might. so important. Yeah. But it's good for you all to think that I am capable of killing. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm talking about. I love it. I love it. Yeah, God. Oh, man. Denise, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. So amazing oh, to hear so you welcome. so openly about it and just so connected with that play. Um, I now am desperate to see you in that play. So um, let, let, let's make sure that happens ASAP. I know. Wider industry. One day we get back on stage at some point. Uh, we will. I don't, you know, uh, when, how, who knows? But I know we will. Theater's, you know, I mean, like just. Can you imagine that first night? I know. Of play? Like, <laughs> like when it's really safe, not like the kind of half arse we're going to do at social distance. Like yeah. imagine the first night where everybody knows they're safe <laughs> and we are out at the, like, God help that cast. They better be good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's no wonder like jerusalem is coming back you know they're yeah. making sure mark rylance is first on the stage yeah, yeah, yeah. during like, the him out, him out, he can't fuck it up yeah. no, it's fine. <laughs> 
But I think that's what's inspiring about the Greeks as well, right? Is I think of all that theatre survived since, you know, the two and a half thousand years ago since this play was written. Oh, yeah. You think it'll be... Yeah, but, but also think about, like, the Greeks' relationship to the theatre. You had to go to the theatre yeah. if you were Greek. Like, they they created those spaces because my, my dream is to do Electra at Epidavros, which oh, is amazing. The, yeah, which is incredible. And that place was built into the side of a fucking mountain and built so that when you stand in a particular place on the stage, the acoustics mean that every single person in the, in those thousands of seats, everyone can hear you because they have, they have designed it in the shape of like, they've designed the seats in the shape of an ear canal. <laughs> like it's honestly, there is so much. I have to send you, my friend Dickie Bow does this amazing. Oh, the amazing Dickie lips. Oh my God. Amazing. And he has this great, great speech about um about ancient greek theater and what where it all began and yeah that's my people send it over send it over well i know i'm gonna send you so much stuff inundation (laughs) well thank (sighs) you so much you're amazing it's so brilliant to talk to you so brilliant to hear about your playground am i a good actress though joe the best you're my you're my actor crush we we started right at the beginning am i better than everyone else do you think a hundred percent i i mean (laughs) i can't i can't Uh, see that being challenged and i'm sure we can prove that quantifiably somehow (laughs) i don't know how yet but i'm pretty sure we'll We'll find a way to prove that. I was talking to somebody yesterday. I have this guy who comes to like get me to exercise because I can't do it on my own. <laughs> and uh, and I said to him yesterday, he said, do you talk to your directors like this? And I was like, oh, no, I'm worse with the directors because I kept asking him, am I the best person that you've ever trained? Do you think? Like, am I like the strongest? And for a while, it's taken him a while to get used to my humor. You know, he was like do you talk like this director? I was like, oh, when I like, it's when I respect and like people that I can have this kind of humor. Like with Jeremy, I was such a child. I was like, Jeremy, do you think I'm really good in that scene? Or if he asked me to do it again, if he asked me to do a scene again, I'd say to him, was I not good? A minute ago, was that other one not good? (laughs) Like, I am such a child. Yeah, and now that I've got some power, I'm going to be allowed to behave whatever way I want. So I am going to be fucking insufferable. (laughs) Who's the best in this room? Acting is basically a competition. Who is the best at acting here? (laughs) That'll fucking be me. Let me just tell you that right now. (laughs) I will hit you on the head with both of my Olivier's. Not just one, you're getting two yeah. in your face. On either side of your head, bang. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I've Holy exhausted hell. myself. You're a hero. If this was in print, this would be disastrous for me. Because <laughs> in print, you can't speak like this because it just sounds like... like I've st- When I would read interviews I've done and think I was really funny in the interview, and then I read it and it's like, oh my God, it literally sounds like I'm saying these things are true. <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. oh well it's right. good we'll wrap it up you're a hero yeah let's do our pretend goodbye and yeah. then we'll stay on the line for another half an hour <laughs> it's truth telling <laughs> speaking the truth i told um, you can't lie not able i love it well here's pretend podcast goodbye <laughs> bye. Oh, bye, joe. bye bye everybody the brilliant denise goff there 
It was so amazing to hear Denise speak so truthfully and openly about the world and her view on it. The Greek plays have proved really popular on Play Crush, and when such amazing actors talk about them so well, it's easy to see why. Thank you again for supporting the Old Vic and the Sherman Theatre and for tuning in. See you all next time. Go gently and go safely. The Old Vic would like to thank Principal Partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Eliot Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who has supported us through this difficult time. 